Let's go. You're listening to Making Data Simple, where we make the world of data effortless, relevant, and yes, even fun. Hey, podcast listeners, Al Martin here today at Making Data Simple. Thank you for listening. As always, I always like to jump right in. So today I'm having a virtual beer with Neil Gilbert Siegel. You know, I was thinking about how do I introduce Neil, and I'm going to do my best, and then I'm going to turn it over to him. I think you're going to find, as I have found, Neil to be incredibly interesting. (laughs) We're going to have a good discussion today. He has led the creation of a large number of successful military intelligence and commercial systems. This includes the U.S. Blue Force Tracker. It's the Army's first unmanned aerial vehicle, uh, among many others. He's had significant advances in consumer electronics and healthcare. Nearly every smartphone and tablet computer in existence makes use of of the concepts for which he's been a patent holder for. Almost every movie screen in the country uses a secure digital distribution system for which Neil is a co-inventor. He joined the USC facility in 2016 after a long career in the aerospace industry, and that includes 18 years as a vice president in Northrop Grumman, retiring as a, a sector vice president and chief technology officer at the end of 2015. And there's a ton of awards that go along with this. I'll mention a couple, including the election to the U.S. National Academy of Engineering. He's a fellow of the National Academy of Inventors. He's a fellow of the Institute of Electronics Engineers, among several others. And he's also the author of a recent textbook on engineering project management. Not to mention, he's got an interesting and famous family. I understand you're also a musician. Welcome, Neil. Thanks for coming here and chatting with us. Well, thank you for asking me. It's kind of fun to work with IBM when I was at Northrop. I did a lot of work with IBM, and, and now, of course, I actually carry the title IBM Professor of Engineering. So it's kind of fun. So I saw that. So tell me about the IBM and part of that title. So, you know, just when I joined the USC faculty, they offered me the endowed chair called the IBM professor. But what I found out actually from IBM is that in the 1960s and 70s, IBM endowed about eight or 10 uh, professorships in engineering around the country. Um and then kind of lost track of them all. And IBM has actually recently in the last few years tried to find all of them and find all of us. And we actually have a little group of all the IBM professors <laughs> and we get together once a year and, and exchange ideas and chat. Um, it's kind of fun. Terrific. Uh, you know, look, I learned something new about IBM every day. Glad to work here. How do you describe yourself? Uh, you're into a lot of different things, which I want to talk about, by the way. Professionally, I have been an engineer. Uh, my original academic training was as a mathematician, and I got a couple of degrees and went to work um, and discovered systems engineering on the job in the aerospace industry and fell in love with it and got a lot of on-the-job training um, and mentorship from great professionals at the company, and then later went back and did a PhD in systems engineering. I worked 39 years in the aerospace industry, and it was a lot of fun. It was a great experience. I finally decided I was ready to slow down. The aerospace industry was great, but it was pretty intense being the chief technology officer of a gigantic corporation. So I decided to slow down. And and so I retired a few years ago from that and took the job on the faculty at USC. 
That doesn't really sound like retirement, though. No, well, it feels like retirement. So, <laughs> well, given where you came concern. from, you mean? Yeah, I mean, it's just it's a lot less. I had four thousand employees at Northrop, and and you know, responsible for lots of things, and yeah. And here, of course, you know, I have the the well-being of a number of students in my hand and so on and so forth. But it's just a, a much more relaxed time. What's your brand? I mean, I, the question is, what binds everything together? Because as I, you know, look through your bio, it, you know, there's unmanned aerial vehicles. There's even music. You've got some patents in reducing unintended interactions between drugs. I mean, when I start reading, like, the technology piece, I mean, yeah, I got it, you know, and I look at that and then you go into like interaction between drugs. I mean, you're like everywhere. Well, what's the thread that binds everything together? Well, I, I think it's using system engineering methodology to make the world better. What we do in systems engineering is we don't look first at the technology, but we look at the mission that is trying to be performed, whether it's doctors or whether it's the army or whether it's um, some industry like energy or healthcare or entertainment, um, they've got some mission. And so we look at the sequence of events, uh, which I call the mission threads, by which they do their jobs today. And we look for ways to improve that. And so what I always try to do is to look for what I call the radical improvement in these mission threads, um, which is kind of independent of technology, and then what you do is you look for technology to see if the new mission thread can be made feasible. Um, so it's kind of interesting because as the person who carried the title chief technology officer for many, many years, I'm actually doing this mission engineering as kind of the first thing. So which means you can apply it to a lot of problem domains, right? So I, of course, I applied it to the U.S. government and the military and the intelligence community and civilian government, you know, Medicare and Social Security and things like that. But as you noted, I've applied it in some other domains as well, sometimes kind of by accident uh, in developing a lot of my command and control systems, which is a particular specialty of mine, uh, military command and control systems for many, many years. You know, the Internet was first developed to operate over wires, I mean, originally phone lines and modems, right? And mm -hmm. we just happened to be one of the first people that tried to deal with the problems of making internet protocols and networks operate over wireless systems. So a lot of the basic issues associated with doing that were solved by my team. Um, and that resulted in a, a small stack of patents having to do with all kinds of things, having to do with mobile devices and ad hoc networks and how to deal with, you know, no matter what the situation is, you probably have less bandwidth when you're wireless compared to wired, right? Um, and you have a different set of security issues and devices can be lost and captured. And what do you do about all that? That got me into, you know, that in, all that influence on com consumer electronics. How do most of your ideas come to you? Are they usually somebody comes to you and say, look, hey, we, we've got a problem and, and can you solve it? Or is it more of throwing a dart at the, the board and, and you move the board to where the dart lands because you find something interesting and, and it becomes, uh, you know, something that, I don't know, you, you want to pursue a little bit of both? I mean. Oh, yeah. No, most of the time it's that somebody who's a mission practitioner, but not necessarily a technologist, like a senior military officer or a senior person from the entertainment industry or whatever approaches me and says, you know, 
we've got this problem, um, and I wonder if I can talk to you about it. Mostly, I'm invited in to help revolutionize some mission. That makes sense. And by the way, I uh, at first I had a question on, you know, it wouldn't seem to me that you'd write an engineering project management uh, textbook. We'll get to that in a minute. <laughs> but now I kind of get it. It seems like it's a it's a method in which you're able to, to solve those problems. But but hold that for a second. I want to get the data. But you've got an interesting past, and I want to talk about. So you uh, helped develop the first unmanned aerial vehicle. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, well, the U.S.'s first unmanned aerial vehicle. The Israelis were probably ahead of us a little bit. And, and to be honest, I should uh, I, I always say it's the U.S. Army's first unmanned air vehicle because the Navy was experimenting with unmanned air vehicles before the Army was. But, mm-hmm. but I have the honor, I think, of being responsible for the first U.S. unmanned aerial vehicle that was a real fielded go-to-war system and not some kind of experiment. And that was done for the U.S. Army. We teamed with an Israeli company who, who because they did have some good experience, mm-hmm. um, but there were still lots of issues and lots of deficiencies. So we added a lot of value. I mean, we, we loved our Israeli partners and, and what they did, uh, but we added a lot of value. And of course, it's interesting because now, you know, for 400 bucks, you can buy a pretty nice electric UAV <laughs> and it, it solved a lot of the problems. But when we started the whole problem, Nothing was solved. You know, how do you get reliable control and how do you deal with the variable latency of the control link and what happens when the link drops? You know, does the airplane go haywire? You know, and it's one thing when you got a $400 thing that weighs about a half pound, uh, but it's something else when you're flying a, an airplane with a 35-foot wingspan and, <laughs> and if it comes to the ground, it can be a serious event, right? So. This was, you know, in the early 1990s, a lot of issues that fortunately have been solved and then other people can come along and do it. And that's great. Um, that's what it means to be a Pathfinder, right? And, and when we develop, so for the military, they're mostly only interested in a time advantage because they know that other people are going to watch what they're doing and copy and they never expect anything to stay permanently. Right? It sounds like to me, whether you were the first, the second or third, you're at the top you're one of the first to create the first UFO. <laughs> That's the way I look at it, because I guarantee when they, somebody saw that originally, like, what the hell is that? <laughs> it was a great experience. And, and, you know, I will say what I always say, that in engineering, everything it's a team activity, right? And most of the worthwhile things in engineering are not just teams, but they're gigantic teams, hundreds of people or even thousands of people. And I might be the leader of the team or the chief engineer of the project or something like that. You know, 99% of the work is done by the rest of that team. So you also talk about, you have concepts in every smartphone and and tablet computer. Can you give us some examples? Well, the whole business of how to um, run TCP and IP over low bandwidth radios, some of the basic concepts of how to manage a network of mobile devices and ad hoc devices, uh, what to do when a device is lost or stolen. So the whole business of remote erase, for example, and a whole bunch of other obvious kinds of remote security administration features, even something as fundamental as the idea that on a mobile device, um, it can be turned relative to the cardinal points, you know, north and south and stuff, and therefore the display automatically orients itself. And drug, 
prescriptions, checking for um, safety through systems? Uh, go ahead. Yes, yeah, this happened when I was very young. I, I was involved in one of the first systems. So this was an example of somebody who came to us with a problem. Um, I didn't realize this because I, I, I'm not a physician or a pharmacist, right? But it turns out that, of course, drugs might be wonderful, um, and carefully vetted by the FDA and all that, but they can interact in unpredictable ways with each other. In some sense, that's one of the fundamental premises of system engineering, right? We're, we're looking in system engineering for emergent that's behavior. Yeah. At one plus one equals three, but not all emergent behavior is good emergent behavior, right? <laughs> so, so you can have this drug and that drug and they can interact in a way that can even be fatal, right? You know, physicians nominally are trained about this, but, you know, there's thousands of such interactions and they're not all at their fingertips. And there's new things every year and there's interactions with chronic conditions and allergies. And, and, and so we were among the first people that approached the problem of how to computerize all that way back in the early 1980s. So obviously, you know, not our system, but systems that derive from the concepts that we help to invent are process almost every prescription in the United States now and, and save tens of thousands of lives every year. The numbers that were reported were pretty horrifying, something like 100,000 deaths a year in the United States alone from these kind of adverse drug interactions. So uh, this was a big, big problem and a big opportunity. I think well, even it'll uh, become even more profound as, as we, uh, I see, you know, with so many uh, prescriptions going out, there's got to be interactions taking place that we still don't have a, a good read on. Well, you know, the government every year, I mean, there's like 100,000 medical papers published in journals every year, right? And, and um, a lot of them deal with, you know, newly discovered adverse interactions between drugs or between drugs and chronic conditions. And, and um, no physician can read all those papers, right? So you need a computer <laughs> to do that part of the job. Well, that's where I think AI will actually help us. I mean, that's a great use case for for modeling, statistical modeling to identify those those correlations that we can't see with the naked eye. Talk about movie screen, secure digital distribution. Yeah, so this is an interesting thing. Um, again, um, I didn't find this. So somebody who was working for me did. I'm old enough to remember when movies were distributed on big, gigantic wheels of film, right? <laughs> Perhaps you are right. too, right? Yeah, and I am. Usually more than one reel of film. So that was a gigantic problem. I, I remember going to uh, a company here in Hollywood when I was starting to work on this problem. You know, one of the things you do is you go around and you watch people work. So I went to the company that was making copies of the movie, The Return of the Jedi. And so they needed to make 6,000 prints. I think they were three reels each. So tens of millions of frames of film their contract with Lucasfilms required that they keep track of every frame because Lucasfilm wanted no frames, you know, going out as informal souvenirs or anything like that, right? Mm -hmm. They're paranoid about security. But when you distribute a movie on film, of course, if you got a, a Cineplex with 20 screens and it has two copies of the film, no matter what the demand is, they can't show more than two things at once. So if you could distribute it digitally, not only is it faster and all that kind of stuff and saves the enormous expense, you can imagine, you know, what 6,000 prints of a movie cost. 
You can instantly, of course, adapt from showing two copies of the movie at once to showing six copies of the movie at once, right? So that you have much more flexible business operating conditions. And the thing that was holding the movie studios back is, of course, they were paranoid about security, right? The, those images and soundtracks are their key intellectual property. They were just worried about piracy. Somebody who was working for me found out that they were interested in this and they were paranoid about it and went to them and said, you know, we're a defense contractor. We may not know much about the movie business, but we know a lot about security. We approached one movie studio first and they, they were susceptible believing that we could help them. And so what they did is they formed a consortium of the seven major studios. And eventually we added the three major movie distribution companies that run movie theaters Mm-hmm. Um, and so now there is a an LLC that is a joint venture between all those organizations that operates the system that we designed for them. So you you spearheaded all that, huh? My team. Yeah, your team, of course, uh, the, the larger team. But that's, that's terrific. That's fascinating. And, and one really visionary person from from Warner Brothers. Very nice. You've got one hell of a track record. You know what occurs to me when I listen to all this, and you were talking about radio idea or RFID or I don't know, you saw radio frequency or something earlier. I can't even get my garage door remotes to work right now. Hell, I'm an electrical engineer. <laughs> I got something, I kid you not, Neil, uh, getting off uh, in the weeds for a second. I got something going on in my house where they just, they only work if they're right next to it. So I got something interfering with it. And then oh, like- Yeah, well, we all have lots of interference because- <laughs> You know, compared to 20 years ago, there's an enormous increase in the number of radio frequency emitters around our houses, right? Well, somebody's got something because, like, it'll go a week and I can't open my garage door. I have to – it'll work, but I have to be, like, underneath the garage door or something. It's got to be that close. And then all of a sudden, like a day yesterday, it lifted. And then, look, I could be normal. I could be two blocks away and it works. I'm trying to figure out who is emitting that radio frequency. I can't figure it out. I'm like looking for neighbors that may have a weather station or something. I don't know. Somebody's done something. I don't know what it is. Anyway, it's funny stuff. Uh, So out of all those inventions, what's your favorite? I would say the whole thing of military command and control was the area that I spent the longest time in, um, starting in air defense command and control and then moving to kind of overall military command and control. And, and, and certainly if you look at all those awards that I've been fortunate enough to receive, more of them have to do with military command and control and the consumer spinoffs from that than anything else. Um, they were great, great life experiences. You know, I loved, I was never in the military and I was a little shocked when I first discovered that I was working with the military, but I loved working for them because they feel they have a really important mission and they're really dedicated to excellence and they will work with you. um, Even if you have kind of long hair and a big fluffy mustache or whatever, um, if they think think you can help them, they are so dedicated to the mission. And of course it's wonderful for us engineers to get involved emotionally into serving important missions, it elevates our life. You know, I spent maybe 20 years of my life doing stuff yep. in the military. Did you have a uh, security clearance? I presume you did. Sure. Yeah, of course you did. All right. So let's, let's transverse. I know a lot of questions, but I want, I do want to get to data. 
You have recently authored, uh, of course, I think everything involves data. I mean, everything we just talked about. So it, here's, it's the nervous system to everything. But uh, you are a recent author of a, of a textbook on engineering project management. I think you may have answered that in terms of some of the answers you've already provided. But why engineering project management? Out of all the books you could write about, of all the interesting things you could write about, engineering project management, why'd start there? Oh, well, the, the simplest reason in the world. Right? So I, I'm currently teaching two undergraduate courses, uh, one on engineering project management, and the other on an introduction to systems engineering. And I just hated all the books available for project management. So I decided that I had to do my own. Um, somewhat to my surprise, I loved writing a textbook. I didn't think I would. I've written, of course, a lot. We all, all of us engineers do, including whole chapters in other people's books, but never done a whole book of my own. But I'm now planning to write a system engineering textbook too. That's why I wrote the project management book. I just didn't feel that the other project management books that were already in the market, and there's a lot of them, I just don't think they really reflected what you might call the practitioner's real world perspective. So tell me more about that. So what's wrong with all the other books? Well, first of all, a lot of them, even though they have three words in the title, engineering, project management, are actually only about project management. I believe firmly that to manage an engineering project, you have to understand that it's an engineering project and you have to understand how engineering on projects is done because yes, we're going to do some of the standard project management procedures, you know, taking earned value and doing risk assessment and all that kind of stuff. But the heart of all those activities is the fact that this is an engineering project and many, many of the things that we are analyzing are engineering matters. So I wanted to write a book that was really reflected this fact that it has three words in the title, that it's really about engineering project management and how we manage an engineering project. I've managed construction projects and I've managed artistic projects. And they're great experiences and they're great things and worthwhile things to do, but they're different than managing an engineering project. The nature of the risks is entirely different. All right. We're going to have to dive down on that then too. So first of all, as your CTO, do you find yourself, I mean, are you either doing uh, engineering project management or are you doing systems engineering? Do you feel like those two concepts surround your every day? I think of those two things as a Venn diagram, right? The two circles that overlap. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I think of it is you do project management using system engineering methodologies, right? System engineering methodologies by themselves mean nothing. To derive value from them, you have to apply them to a project to try and create a real system. There's a big overlap between these things. And in in the two courses I teach, there's actually maybe a quarter of the material that is exactly the same. So the students who take both my courses, which is most of them, you know, get some of the material hit twice. So I see those two things as really kind of two facets of the same diamond. So what makes engineering, I mean, you're keying off that word so different and you're suggesting that, look, a lot of people will say engineering project management, but they're really only talking about project management. What are they missing underneath the engineering umbrella? Because most of the actual decisions and analyses, now we're, now we're driving towards data, right? Most of the actual analyses you do have to do with engineering matters. 
and the nature of the risks, the, the degree of accuracy or the variable degree of accuracy and so on, and the consequences are very, very different for engineering projects than say for artistic or construction projects, right? In construction projects, you're seldom dealing with absolutely new invention, right? There's building codes and the, yeah, the specific look of your building might be the same, but you know, there's building codes that define how the foundation is supposed to be and how the structure is supposed to be and how the plumbing and electrical stuff is supposed to be. Um, you're not inventing a lot of new techniques, but it is the essence of the kind of engineering that I do that we are inventing in every project. I mean, in some sense, nobody's going to pay a lot of money for a new engineered system unless it's better, right? Which means you're inventing some stuff. That makes those projects, in my experience, materially different. What makes the project management piece of different as it relates to when you're inventing? How does that change? How does the, uh, oh, because, the methodology... Because the- the methodology has to recognize the complexity and centrality of the engineering assessment. And when you just talk about building a risk register, it doesn't do that. And so what happens is people who learn what you might call generic project management end up creating superficial risk registers, just as a trivial example, right? You haven't been taught that Engineering is going to define the sufficiency of a project management step, not just some procedural process is going to define the sufficiency. Hey, thank you for being on the podcast. I learned a lot. Always a pleasure talking to a fellow engineer. Any last comments that I may have missed or anything you want to say to the listeners? Thank you for inviting me. Um, I'm delighted to talk about these kinds of subjects. If you want more, there's my book, um, or you can apply to the uh, USC engineering program and, and come and study with me. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Neil. I appreciate it. And, and always thanks to the listeners. Hit us on almartintalksdata at gmail.com, and we'll get uh, your requested topics and or uh, interviewees on. Thank you. Thank Next you. time, I'll, I'll see you on the podcast. Thanks, Neil. Thanks for listening to the Making Data Simple podcast, where we make data fun. Be sure to visit ibmbigdatahub.com forward slash podcast to access the show notes and uncover even more great episodes. Remember, the views expressed here are those of the host and its guests and do not necessarily represent the views of IBM. Until next time, let's go over 